0: Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer, do this and you will live, but Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, as you know, we're in the middle of a sermon series on theological questions, which you, the congregation, have given and want some answers to. Well, today we're dealing with that question that can be phrased in many different ways. The most common is why would an all-powerful loving God allow there to be so much suffering in the world? Or why did God create evil or allow evil to come into the world? Well, these kinds of questions have their own category. It's called theodicy. Now there are many different answers and some are better than others and the bible deals with the question in many different places in many different ways often contradictory ideas and expressions the problem for us is there is not one clear universal answer to the question so we have to use our methodist quadrilateral to work on an answer You'll recall, we start with scripture and we look at the traditions of our Hebrew and Christian ancestors as they wrestled with the question. And then we analyze and draw upon human experiences, ours and others. And then we use our reason and the principles of philosophical and theological disciplines to come to some kind of logical, sensible understanding. And when we come to that conclusion and say, this I believe, it's not the final answer for us because honestly, we might be wrong. I might be wrong. New information, new experiences, further reflection might bring a new insight that would make me have to adjust my belief a whole lot or just a little this way or a little that way. But frankly, living and growing in faith often makes us go through adjustments. For if we are to grow closer to God and deeper in our faith commitments, we need to change, we need to grow. Now concerning this theodicy question, I can't cover it all, but I'll share a little of my reflections over 50 years of pondering and wondering and studying. Scripture first. Noah's Ark story, the Great Flood, is not meant to be interpreted as history. It's a long parable wrestling with the question, what is God going to do with this disobedient, sinful humanity? How can God fix that problem? Well, the message of the Noah's Ark story is if God's going to fix the problem, he's just going to have to get rid of all the people if he's going to get rid of the evil. That's one answer. Then another story not meant to be read as history is the story of Job. Job is a part of what we call the wisdom literature in the Bible. It's not the history part. We find in all the dialogue of the friends coming to help Job in his misery, their expressions are from, I believe in the Hebrew holiness code, which affirms that when you are moral and righteous, God will bless you with long life and prosperity. But if you sin, if you do wrong, then God will punish you with disasters which will leave you poor and sick and grieving the loss of your closest loved ones. The supposed friends of Job are telling him, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned for God to be punishing you with the loss of your wealth, your whole family, and your health job protests no because as we know from the introduction job is perfect in his behavior and in his devotion to god now this book of job is wrestling with the question why do the innocent suffer often from the actions of the wicked unscrupulous who seem to live long and prosper never seeming to suffer for any of their sins the biblical author of job is challenging that holiness code saying it doesn't always work that way experience and observation shows us so many innocent people suffer suffer greatly however i'm not going to dismiss the holiness code completely because it works most of the time being good and honest loving does build good fulfilling relationships It builds trust and a good reputation, which usually means success in life with many blessings to come, but it's not 100%. Accidents, disease, bad people can bring undeserved suffering and pain, and then people ask, why me? What did I do wrong to deserve this? Well, this innocent, undeserved suffering raises the question that if God is all-loving, omnipotent and omniscient, all-powerful and all-knowing, why will God allow this suffering to occur? Why won't God intervene and stop it? Well, some people answer that question by saying, well, there is no God, because if God is all-powerful and all-loving, God would intervene and God would stop it, and since he hasn't done it, he just doesn't exist. Well, we've had a few of our Barton, Clinton, Gordy lecturers, the theologians, deal with this question as they came and talked to us. And their answer has been that their personal solution is to give up on one of those absolutes rather than give up on belief in God. They decided they would give up on that quality of God being omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, they can't give up on God being omniscient and all-loving, for they believe and have experienced God knows our suffering, and that God comes to us with love and healing and comfort and empowers us to overcome. So this choosing to give up on the omnipotent quality of God has been explained by some Philosophical reasoning that theologians have done as they've struggled with this theodicy question, their explanation is that before God began to create, God was all powerful and had perfect freedom to do whatever God would decide to do. All things were possible for God. Well, God could have created us and our world differently, many different options. If you watch science fiction movies like Star Wars with all these other creatures from other worlds, you see the visual artists' images of the many different ways humanoid creatures could be created. Bring those images to mind, those crazy looking creatures. But besides those weird ones, there was Data and Spock who were also made differently However, before God created, God had this freedom to create or not to create at all. But once God created, God surrendered the option to choose not to create. And with each way God decided to create our world with its laws of nature, its structure and chemical makeup, God had surrendered all those other options to do it differently. God imposed limitations on God's self, limitations on God's unlimited power and freedom, for God gave away a lot of God's freedom and power to the creation. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, God had poured out God's freedom and power into the creation. And especially for us human beings, God gave away power and freedom in order to share that creative power with us. God gave us minds and emotions, spirituality, so that we could think and feel, reason and decide, be inspired and be motivated. In doing so, God gave away that absolute freedom to control. In theology, that self-giving, that self-emptying, that pouring out onto the creation, freedom and power is called kenosis. It's an expression of divine love. It's an act of self-limiting control in order to bestow freedom and power as a gift. And in so doing, we human beings become like God to a degree, experiencing the freedom and power to create. And through that degree of likeness, as Genesis said, made in the likeness of God, we're given the ability to be in relationship with God. We believe this gift of freedom and power to us human beings allows a relationship and communion and ultimately a deeper bond between God and the creation of love and affection. As St. Augustine put it so beautifully, in a divine act of love, God created us and made our hearts restless until we, re, we respond in love to God and one another. In God human terms, it's like giving your 16 year old the keys to the car when he or she has gotten the driver's license. It's risky, it's dangerous. And of course, the huge increase in your car insurance premium shows you how big a risk it is and how costly it can be. But some might still think, how could God, a truly loving God, expose us to such great risks, turning us loose to potentially make fatal mistakes? Well, God bestows freedom and power, but God has not abandoned us. God does not control, but God stays in touch by inspiring and revealing truth in the minds and hearts of great leaders. God inspired the structures of human society, starting with the family and communities of faith to support and guide us, to pass on wisdom and truth from generation to generation. And of course, we each have the many different modes of prayer and styles of worship to be in communion with God. From our human experience as parents who make babies and bring new life into the world, we care for and surround a tiny baby's world, making it so safe and controlling so much to try to keep the baby safe, but as they grow and develop, we turn loose more and more control, allowing them more and more independence and self-direction. I'll have to tell you that I have never been more proud of my three sons, each in his own way, in different circumstances, when they have made selfless, courageous, ethical decisions, not because I or someone else was watching over them, controlling their behavior, but it came from within themselves, from their own core of values and integrity, and a sense of justice and a desire for the greater good. I believe that is what God wants each one of us and also all of humanity to find within ourselves that inner goodness. We need the freedom and power to be given to us in order to find what we're truly made of. It's risky and we make mistakes along the way. One of our biggest mistakes is not using the brains and intelligence God has given us to learn from our mistakes and pay closer attention to the world of nature and the natural processes, the laws of cause and effect. So often we foolishly ignore the dangers and put ourselves in harm's way. Obvious things like building houses in the floodplain or failing to inspect dams and bridges that may fail in extreme weather events. We call natural disasters from weather events evil because of the loss of property and life. Natural evil are those things that seem to be out of our control because the forces of nature bring destruction and havoc into our lives. However, we have been blessed with scientific inquiry to discover just how God did create the natural world and we can understand cause and effect so that we can learn to live in harmony with nature and avoid and sometimes possibly prevent some of the natural disasters we would call evil. But there's another category of evil we call moral evil where human beings are in control and do decide to commit acts carelessly or intentionally causing harm, death, and destruction. For example, arson, terrorism, and obvious intentional acts of violence and destruction now few of us intend to do moral evil we think and feel we're good people trying to do good but sometimes we intentionally decide to break the rules and it does cause injury and death now you've probably seen these public service commercials showing people texting while driving and having a serious collision It wasn't a terrible immorality like cold-blooded murder, but it was a moral decision to ignore the fundamental rules of safe driving that then results in a destructive evil. I believe most of us, most of the time, are very intentional about doing what's right and avoiding any overtly evil acts that cause destruction and harm, however, There is a more subtle kind of evil. We who like to think we're good may actually commit from time to time. It's called obstructive evil. Obstructive evil is the evil that blocks or thwarts God's will for the good, for justice and fairness, inclusiveness, and what we call distributive justice where There's no longer an obscene accumulation and hoarding of wealth by a few while masses of people are malnourished living in dire poverty. When we support the status quo to our own advantage while others continue to suffer at no fault of their own but rather suffer because the structures of society the economy, the institutions that remain unresponsive to their needs, then we are complicit in this obstructive evil. One of the great theologians of the last century, I tried to find, I can't, couldn't find whether it's H. Richard or Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the Niebuhrs stated that the fundamental basis of human beings in humanity toward one another is tribalism, which means Attitudes and decisions and policies that have us act as though our tribe, our group, our people are more worthy, more deserving, even more human than other groups. Out of this attitude, we justify slavery and warfare, zoning of housing and whose neighborhood is torn down for a new freeway and where we're going to place that city dump. The most extreme was Nazi Germany, genocide against Jews and gypsies, the mentally ill and the physically handicapped. Our wanting to build walls to shut out others and exclude those who are different from us is another form of tribalism. Well, this familiar Good Samaritan story illustrates a lot of what I've been lifting up. Jesus is pointing out the tribalism inherent in his times that separated and restricted Samaritans and Jews from working together for God's will for the greater good. He was trying to show how tribalism is an obstructive evil, blocking love and compassion that God willed for humanity. The account begins with this discussion that basically wants to categorize who is the neighbor that I should love and who is the na- or who are those that don't belong? that I can ignore and even treat badly, is the unspoken question. Well, the man who was beaten, robbed, and left half dead on the side of the road watches a priest and a Levite pass by on the other side, refusing to help him. The story leaves us to wonder, what did the man, the victim, think and feel? Since we assume he's a Jew, and was watching the priest and the Levite, his own kind, his own tribe, his own in-group refused to help him. Surely he was becoming depressed and feeling hopeless. And then the Samaritan appears, one of the despised and belittled tribe. Surely this victim was feeling even more helpless and hopeless. By means of the parable, Jesus is giving us an answer to the question of evil evil exists. It happens when people decide to act in some self-serving way, not caring about what happens to others. The sin of commission, the robbery, the beating, cause injury and harm and loss of property. Then the evil persists because good people, the priest, the Levite, do nothing. The sin of omission And they continue an obstructive evil by living in and reinforcing societal structures of institutional injustice. And they block God's will for peace and harmony, love and caring. But besides the tribalism between Samaritan and Jew, biblical scholars tell us that the priest and the Levite were most likely operating out of a mentality that blamed the victim. If you are diseased or suffer some hardship, it was believed to be God's punishment on your sin, i.e. the holiness code. The victim was ritually unclean. The priest and the Levite could not touch him or they might become unclean. He was bloody and he might be dead. But that whole ritual system of laws about clean and unclean that separated people and excluded people from belonging to the community and receiving love and care were the stone walls that Jesus was trying to break down by his ministry. Another stone in that wall was his table fellowship with sinners. He touched and healed those who were ritually unclean. He healed them so that they could rejoin their families. And become a part of the community again. Jesus was overcoming the obstructive evil. Now, the parable turns the question from why doesn't God do something about evil to what should we do about evil? The parable answers the question go and do likewise. Be the good neighbor, like the Samaritan. Amen and amen. Well, let us. Sing this final hymn.